going to start looking at Marx. Um, Marx is a theorist. Uh, he's a philosopher. That's the word for it. Uh, he's yeah. a philosopher from the 19th century. And a lot of people have a lot of opinions about him. And most of those people haven't actually read his work. And I understand that because it's not super accessible. I want to be like, oh, well, you don't like this band. We'll name 20 songs from their album type crap. But I want to make sure people at least understand what's being spited and hidden away and told as demonic uh, across America and across Europe is not really being practiced in spite of the people going, well, he's the greatest historian that ever lived. And uh, that's, you know, it's kind of a weird thing that they praise him so highly over there and then don't don't follow it as much as they used to. That has a lot to do with politics and power. And uh, so I think it's best if people just understand why regions that have actually read his work think highly of him and what his work is and they can make their own judgments. That being said, if you didn't get it already from from that first minute, David is definitely going to be our what we would call expert here for lack of a better word. I don't want to I don't I don't think I want to go too out on a limb and say that David is like the preeminent Marx expert of Franklin County, Missouri. No, no, no. That's well, probably exactly uh-huh, that's probably an accurate statement. Um but it definitely in this closet uh, that we're recording in, he is definitely the expert here. Um I have a whole lot of preconceived notions about Mr. Marx um while I am working my way through those and trying to figure out where I stand anymore. Um I, I definitely came from a far more conservative lean uh, in college. I was watching uh, a lot of Milton Friedman PBS videos and Ronald Reagan's 1984 National Convention speech like it was uh, a music video. Um, so obviously, in order to be in that mindset, you have to have a certain feeling about Marx. And I'm working my way through that. That being said, I have literally never read Das Kapital. Um, or capital, as we can refer to it going forward, because it feels dirty when I say it the other way. Um, <laughs> just, just me personally. Uh, and I've never really read, read any of Marx. I've, I've understood what other people synthesize it to be, but I've never read it myself. And that kind of felt like I was doing it a disservice. So I decided I wanted to try and learn it better. And David was the person I knew that knew it better. So that's why we're in this closet. <laughs> Talking about capital. And and this is an important thing, because usually when you get into theory, the best way to do it is to read it with other people. It's not necessarily like a fiction book. Nope. Um, you want to read it with other people, and then you want to stop every few chapters and just discuss it. Yep. So what me and Nathan are doing is we're recording our discussions, but we're recording our discussions with an eye on listeners. And that's not that hard of a transition. Nathan's used to doing podcasts. Uh, <laughs> I have literally one and a half podcasts. There you go. This is this this is another half, so now it's two. Welcome to a full two. <laughs> we've, we've rounded up. Um, I don't normally do this on any kind of radio like this, but I'm used to, you know, kind of usually being the person that has any expertise on marks in a room, even though I really only got turned on to him a couple years ago because I've dove in pretty deep into there. Yeah. Um, and if Nathan is accurate, which I, I hope is not the case, but it's possibly the case that I'm the utmost mark expert in Franklin County, Missouri, uh, that just tells us we got a lot to do. I mean, we may be the only two people that could, radio. We may be the only two people that could name Karl Marx in Franklin County, Missouri at this I, time. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There they may like, be others. If you're out there and you're listening, come prove me wrong. Come I to the feel cave. Like that's a huge exaggeration. You say that, dude. <laughs> come on. Come on. Uh, Franklin County's not that bad. Come on. Maybe uh, Washington. Uh, <laughs> my wife's gonna hate that if she hears that. Yeah, she probably yeah, won't. Yeah. She won't, my wife hasn't listened to any of my two and a half podcasts, so why would they start now? Oh, two and a half? We just gained a whole other half podcast. I haven't told them about that one yet. <laughs> um, 
So, like like David said, the, the whole goal here is that we're going to we need to read a couple chapters of this uh, because we are. This is not an audiobook. This is not Kindle. Uh, you can go buy that. Uh, this is not us reading Capital to you, but this is two people. One person that's already been through it and is very versed in it, at least in in the the rest of what Marx has, and one person that's open to figuring out what the heck's going on but hasn't read it before, kind of talking about what the heck we just talked about there and what we just read. So if you're reading Capital, uh, hey, the chapters we're talking about today are chapters one through four. Um, If you haven't, eh, this is probably going to make very little sense, but if you're still bearing with me, God bless you. Welcome, Uh, and, and let's go to that. So that being said... David, who the heck was Karl Marx? Uh, Karl Marx was a philosopher in the 1800s. He was the son of a lawyer uh, in Prussia. And uh, Engels is going to be an important part of this, too. Engels is also from Prussia and also went to London, but they did not run into each other either place. They kind of met up from other circumstances. Weird serendipity. Yeah, weird serendipity. Um, Engels was a a very, very well-off guy whose father owned a textile factory, and he went to... Uh, school for theory, and then his father sent him to work in the textile factory thinking, this boy is going to be one of them stupid college kids with their radical thoughts, and I'm going to work that radical out of him because in the 19th century, Fox News apparently just existed by word of mouth. <laughs> so he thought he was going to work the radical out of him, and he helped him co-write the Communist Manifesto? That, that's, that's right, and that's how he met Marx, and they didn't hit it off the first time. And then he met back up with Marx in Paris, and well, because Marx thought he was going to be one of the Hegelians. Uh, and oh. Marx was one of the young Hegelians at first, and then he got out of that group. Uh, he had some issues. He, I mean, he used to write stuff with Bauer, who was one of the young Hegelians, and there was a big group of them, and they were like, you know, religion is evil, and it's what's ruining the world. Mm-hmm. And then there was a weird set of materialists that didn't get into dialectics, that were still considered young Hegelians, that were anarchists, like Stirner, and Marx worked with them. And you'll notice in a lot of works, Marx basically calls all the young Hegelians uh, from the dialectic um, idealists to the anarchist materialists a bunch of morons. And and Marx has a... That, that is one of the... As someone that's never jumped into it before, when you're reading political economy, you don't expect a whole lot of, like... 90s era rap beefs to jump in, but Marx just like left, right, and center is burning people. Like everyone around, like you are all idiots. I have got this right, and you are all morons. Just like dropping mic on people left, right, and center. So, oh yeah, Marx. I would say most of the time when you get into Marx, it's a lot of shorter works. It's uh, very simple to get through. They're 10 pages, 20 pages, and there's some very important, accurate, radical concepts in there, but they're pretty well responses to like three page papers from Bauer or Stirner or Ricardo, and he just, like, takes this and goes, fuck you for 10 pages. And then we just get it edited by angles and printed off as theory, because that's how Marx worked. Uh, Das Kapital is a little bit different than that. It is a three-volume, enormous book. I've only even read volume one. Um, and volume one is still in the what? But if you were to pick up what, a couple thousand or a thousand pages or yeah. so, give or take. Yeah. No, it's it's big. It's a doorstopper. It will it will terrify you. It's the kind of thing that a, a literature teacher shook at you in high school and went, "If you're not good, I'll make you read this." Yeah. And the biggest Marxists in history is the Lenins and that they. They've read Volume 2 and 3. Most people are aware of Volume 2 and 3. There's copies floating around. Uh, Most people, even ones that get get into Marx, don't read Volumes 2 and 3. Volume 1's 
got so much in there, and there's so many other smaller works that can eat it up. Um, so maybe I'll read Volume 2 and 3 the first time somewhere in this I process. was about to say, if this goes on for more than, than, than Volume 1, we may well, we'll get to Volume 2 and 3. And that, that would be cool. Uh, if you are jumping into Das Kapital the way Nathan did jumping there in first, that is jumping into the deep end of the pool. Now! Which is awesome. <laughs> I, that is, it is fun. I, 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 I'm, I'm excited to try it. That being said, I'm not... I'm not coming at it from a complete novice standpoint in the sense of I have a degree in philosophy, uh, which required me to get through an entire course on Hegel. Uh, Now, that being said, I remember virtually nothing (laughs) about Hegel. I remember drinking excessively and using that as an excuse to get through Hegel. I remember Googling. Uh, papers my professor wrote about Hegel. He wrote a paper comparing Led Zeppelin to Hegel at one point. Um, and then stealing his thesis and report and parroting it back to him to get a decent grade. But I don't remember enjoying Hegel very much. I also didn't like Kant. I don't like any of the German philosophers. So the problem here is, is that all of my favorite guys are French and they all think that Marx was an asshole. So I'm, I'm, I'm having to, again, I'm overcoming some, some prejudices to get here, but getting through tedious nonsense, uh, uh, political economy and stuff like that is not necessarily new to me. But uh, that being said, this is not exactly the, the easy road, people, if you, if you want to jump in here. And, and again, I think, and this is going to be the first time I actually reference the text, but the, the part that, that kind of struck me initially early on, oh, where is it? It's in the preface to, I want to say, the second edition, or it was either in the preface to the second edition or the preference, it was the preface to the French edition. That's ah, right. That's fitting. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back. Ha. Um, where it. Well, but, 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 oh man, I highlighted way too much stuff. Um, you highlighted stuff. Oh, I highlighted so much, dude. It's the only way I know how to get through this stuff. Okay. Well, this is your first time through, so why don't why don't we do it where you comment on the stuff you highlighted? That way, I'm not like skimming back through chapter one through four because I basically know them and. Oh yeah, yeah. no, no, no. you've internalized it. And then I'll comment. Yeah, okay. no, 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 that works. That works just okay. fine. But again, the the and I'm I'm gonna quote I'm gonna paraphrase Marx to, to probably his own detriment here. Uh, this is hard. <laughs> this is hard, and there's no way about it. There's no there's no easy road through what he's trying to do here. He has to literally, um, as is the tradition at the time, he's going to spend the first three chapters essentially creating a very very tedious scientific foundation for what he wants to do, and what he wants to do as far as I understand it through four chapters of this fun book is create a scientific law of how economies work, or at least how the capitalist mode of economy works. And that is super not interesting to most people. Uh, while the implications of it may be coming up with the, you know, the roots and how do you make concrete and how do you build a foundation is not exactly what most people call riveting reading. Um, that is why this grouping of chapters is chapters one through four. Because chapter four is the first time that I didn't want to put my head through my tablet while I was reading this book. Um, <laughs> and I actually start going, oh, oh, that's interesting. And so I feel like it is, and, and we agree that it is important, that this not just be punishment to you for the first the first half of it. So so that part of it is, is important. And that's where we're kind of going. Um, yeah, and also... Uh, Nathan has read through chapter four. Uh, he's going to get a lot more excited than even he realizes once we get into the stuff. But I will say the first eight chapters, 
it starts speeding up. And you go, oh, this is where it gets better. Oh, this is where it gets better. And when you get to chapter nine, you realize, oh, yeah, all of that was still boring foundation. This is it. <laughs> so, again... If you think that boy, if the rule of thumb is if you think this is boring, just wait. It'll still keep being boring, but then it'll get better. We promise. Uh, yeah, um, it is definitely not boring from chapter nine. No, 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 not no. at all. And again, <laughs> again, we all. That's that's the whole point of this is that we are we are trying to synthesize some of this stuff so that it is. Uh, if you don't want to necessarily suffer the way the rest of us have suffered, fine. Uh, cheat. Get there where you need to go. But again, I, marks preface to the French edition. I applaud the idea of publishing the translation of Capital as a serial. Basically exactly what we're doing. Talking about it in, in format, you know, a serialized format. In this form, the book will be much more accessible to the working class, a consideration which outweighs more than everything else. And that is the other thing about Marx is he did, as far as I can tell so far, genuinely care about getting his message out to as many people as humanly possible in whatever form worked for them. He was not... And I don't know how you could have an ideology like his and, and be elitist in that way, but he didn't seem to be. That being said... This is the good side of your suggestion. Here is the reverse. The method of analysis which I employed and which had not previously been applied to economic subjects. Again, Marx really, really cocky about himself. He loves himself. <laughs> he thinks he is the breast. Um, makes reading the first chapters rather arduous. That is the understatement of the goddamn century. Uh, and it is... The, it is feared that the French public, or the Nathan public, always impatient to come to a conclusion, I don't know why that's a bad thing, uh, eager to know the connection between general principles and the immediate questions, may be disheartened because they'll be unable to move on at once. So people, we're not going to release these until you can move on at once and we'll go through the next chapter, so you won't have that problem. But welcome to Nathan's problem right now is that he's just dealt with the, with four pages of a science textbook that he was told was going to change his views about the world, and right now he wants to come across the table at somebody. So, so... <laughs> David, explain to me why I shouldn't come across the table at you right now for telling me that this book was awesome. Uh, it, it, because it gets much, 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 much better. Ah, that's what they told me about Game of Thrones. Still haven't got through that. Uh, <laughs> this is not Game of Thrones. Okay. We're All not, right. we're not regurgitating dragon violence and naked chicks. All we're, right. uh, we're actually getting into how the world works. And you'll notice, and, and it talks about this in the preface, there's a lot of stuff when you get into the good parts, you'll start noticing it references English situations, English workdays, English laws, because that's where Marx was writing the book pertaining to. Uh, but the thing about socialist theory is it's very, 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 very applicable universally. Uh, so you'll be reading the book and you'll be seeing these things about this law and you'll think, oh, like that happened in that state and blah, 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 you know. Uh, you'll also notice some details that'll be a little more revealing into some things we've packed away from our history. Like people have kind of forgotten that the eight-hour workday and 40-hour work week came from literal riots where they bombed police officers in Chicago. They did, they did do that. They, <laughs> they did, did do that. that. That was a thing. Uh, it was very hard fought for. It was not just, oh, that's how capitalism works. No. Uh, so, And that's why they try to take it away with a second job without paying overtime. Uh, but we're not going to get into that here. Not yet. Uh, but anyway. podcast. It's coming. Um, <laughs> but um, so you'll notice some details talking about like, well, the workday needs to only be 10 hours so that you have time for yourself mm -hmm. and your time for your sleep. These 16-hour days and 12-hour days are too long. And these, these children working are just children and they're not getting enough sleep. And you're just like, there's a lot of details there to unpack. Yeah. You, you'll just smile and nod and read and realize those details were very true at the time. And important because, again, we, we look at... 
you know, where we're at now and think, well, we've hit the pinnacle, we've hit what it is, and then realize, no, in 50, in 100 years when we look back, or in 200 years when we look back, is this going to seem asinine to us? Is this going to seem as weird as the concept of a 16-hour workday being normal? Yeah. Um, and so that's, again, I think that's one of the, the highlights of reading, you know, Mars and reading it in, in, again, in this time period, not trying to, we're not trying to extrapolate this now. And that's, I think, the other interesting part is the, the whole goal of this series is is to get through these these works in their own words, in their own context. This is not, if you want a podcast that is going to tell you about why this stuff is really relevant right now and why this stuff is really problematic right now, um, Citations Needed is a really good one. There's a whole bunch of really great podcasts that are talking about that, but I think, yeah. and again, looking Crashing through... Crashing the system's good. Yes, and looking through the internet, uh, again, there are options. There are, there are, David Harvey does a very good reading series on, on reading capital. Yeah. Um, that being said, that's not necessarily the goal of this. The goal of this is to take these works that people are kind of terrified of or talk about without having any context of and, and explain what they meant at the time and try at least to extrapolate what they meant at the time. And that's why, again, we have one person that's actually read it and one person that's kind of trying to do it on the fly. Just where I'm going to feel like an asshole at the end of this is what I have a feeling. But that's... Uh, What's probably going to happen is I'm going to look like an asshole because I'm going to be told to be the uh, expert when I only <laughs> read through it one other time besides this. Uh, well, it... and, and everybody's going to be empathetic to Nathan going, what the fuck, dude? Yes, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is, it's a good position to be. I rarely get to be in this position, so I will soak up your adulation, 12 people that are listening. Um, now, let's. Uh, I think that's a good time to kind of seg into to chapter one. Yep. Um, so that people can see what we're talking about. Now, chapter one, uh, Nathan's got some highlights. We're going to use those as our primary source. But we're going to start with the idea behind chapter one because it's kind of driven into a few sectors. So Marx kind of talks at very, very dry length to really establish what the hell is value. Because people talk about things having value. Do. Make things having value. What's our value? And what's a commodity? And Marx really has to establish that before he does anything else. So he makes sure he does. And he says things have two types of values. They have a use value and they have an exchange value. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the way he goes at it, he says, you know, obviously if something's useless, no one's going to buy it. And you, I mean, you want to use something. You know, coat's good for wearing. Shoe's good for putting on your feet. You know, they, they have this use value. But if you make a coat for someone else and you want to s- sell it to them, it doesn't matter that, you know, as long as they have a use value, that's fine. But the price of the coat is not going to be determined by the use value because how the hell do you figure that out? You have to equate it to something else, something you want back. Yep. And so that's the exchange value. It's completely disconnected from the youth value. It's completely relative to the other item because, you know, having a hammer and being able to put in nails, you can't translate to warp than the winner. You're just not going to be able to do that. Nope. But you can translate, oh, I can get two hammers for one coat. And then, again, just being someone that's reading through that, you go, okay, all right, I took algebra. I can balance an equation. Let's go. How the fuck do you figure out what any of their values are, though? Because then you've got a, two hammers to one coat. Then how do you determine what a hammer is? Like, go backwards. Go backwards, Marx. Why did you start here? And that's, I think that's the interesting thing. And I don't know if there's an actual answer to this. And I'm sure there is a, a fundamental answer to this. But it's just the first thing that struck me as someone that hadn't been there before. Marx starts with commodity. And he basically goes, a commodity is the, the starting point. It's where we're going to start. It's where we're going to build everything. Why? Why did you start at commodities? Why didn't you start at money? 
Uh, well, you'll see how that evolves. God damn it! Because he's going to tell you what money is mm-hmm. using a commodity. And, um, is that not... Maybe that's chapter five or six. No, it is. It is. We're going to okay, get there. Yeah, we're going to okay. get through there. But yeah, still. so this is where we say just patience, pa- just patience, just patience. You'll see what money is. Mm-hmm. But we're going to start with things have an exchange value. They do. Okay. Um, now, he goes at length mostly using coats and linen. If I have 100 yards of linen. He is super into coats and linen. <laughs> I felt like I was World of Warcraft crafting all over again. Like, I'm going to farm some linen to make a cloth yeah. armor tonight, baby. He says, you know, uh, 100 yards of coat is... Or 200 yards of coat is worth 100 yards of linen, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's its exchange. And he says, you know, it inherently has to be able to exchange back. So its use value can change, but it has to, by equation, exchange back. Mm-hmm. But you're sitting there hanging out to dry. You're basically like, yeah, I mean, how do how do I know what either of those mean? And he says, well, you've got to introduce a third thing then. You need yeah. your equal sign, okay? Yep. So we're going to bring in gold, Okay. So one coat is worth two ounces of gold. Uh, one hundred yards of linen is worth one ounce of gold, and so one coat equals a hundred yards of linen, e- or two hundred yards of linen equals two ounces of gold. You know, type thing. So you have this triangular understanding, and gold acts as the middleman, because then gold can turn around, and we can say, hey, we can exchange gold for something else. Yes. We can exchange gold. I forget what sample he used for. Did he use iron? Oh, something to that effect. Yes. Yeah. I, yep. This is where my brain started turning So off. he says, you know, X gold can be exchanged for Y iron, can be exchanged for Z linen, can be exchanged for blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, so gold acts as a medium of exchange. So now it has an exchange value, but it has an index of that exchange value by being relative to everything else. And it has to be consistently relative. And if it's consistently relative, then there's something everything has in common. Now, diamonds don't have a lot in common with coats. They don't. Uh, iron doesn't have a lot in common with coats. It doesn't. So what do they all have in common? Well, you can get some, and he says this, he's very much defining a commodity. Yeah. You can get something out of the ground and use it, but then you've never sold it. It's a commodity. It just has a use value. So, for example, the me, I'm growing a lot of, uh, let's call it uh, uh, herbal pharmaceuticals in my backyard. <laughs> uh, but I don't intend to distribute those, Herman pharma- those herbal pharmaceuticals. I'm just going to use them for my own personal use. I didn't create a commodity. Yeah, I just created a thing. I created a thing and I use that thing, but that doesn't make it a commodity. So while that same weed could be used for selling and a commodity later, it's just for me now. It's just for my own uses. Yeah, a good way to put this is like if you make yourself dinner. Yep. If you make yourself dinner, you're not a professional chef. You're not selling somebody your spaghetti you made. You're putting it on a plate and feeding it to you and your kids. Yep. You made it, doesn't make it a commodity. Helps if you made it out of the stuff out of your backyard, because otherwise you're going to get into a whole bunch of other tangential <laughs> shit that Marks wants to get you into later, but we'll get there. <laughs> but as we get there, people. You killed the cow out back, you, 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 you picked the tomatoes, and you made dinner for your child, and they looked at you like, why did you just feed me raw beef and tomato? <laughs> you're, you're jumping ahead here. <laughs> yeah, well, I have that tendency. This work is mind-numbing. Okay. So, you know, I mean, obviously, it's not a commodity. So a commodity, though, can't just be something like an apple sitting on a tree. That's not a commodity. I can't just walk up and go, I want to buy that apple, sell it to me, tree. 
The tree's I mean, not going to fucking sell I it I mean, you. you could, but then we'd call you schizophrenic, <laughs> and we'd deal right. with that at a later date. That tree's not going to sell it to you. Somebody has to pick that apple off that tree and sell it to you. Somebody has to mine the diamonds from the ground. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to turn that linen into a coat. So whether it's a finished product or a raw material, there's somebody putting labor into it. And that labor is the one universal link. And things that are higher in value tend to have more labor. Diamonds are very rare. It's extremely hard to go mine a diamond out of a cave. So they're pretty expensive. You know, water tends to be pretty cheap. Bottle of water, what, a couple bucks? It doesn't take much to get water. I mean, unless there's a hurricane in your area. Unless there's in which a hurricane. Case it much scarcer and it's harder but to get. But then you have to have somebody drive water down... Uh, go up, acquire water, drive it down from another state, and distribute it out. So, again, that's adding more labor. Yeah. Adding scarcity means adding more labor. labor. So the universal thing that all these things share is labor. Yep. And so when you're taking this goal as the middleman, as the exchange value, you're saying, hey, all of these things have some amount of labor, and so we can relate them to each other, because no matter what labor you get into it, things only have value if they have a use value. This doesn't have a use value for me but it has it for someone else, that has a use value for me, I'm going to exchange it based on the labor, and I'm not going to think about the labor. He talks about it being elusive, yeah. hidden. You don't go, hmm, that that took six hours to make that hamburger. So, you know, from the cow raising to the slaughtering to the yep. cooking. So I'm going to pay three fifty for it. You're going to go, oh, it's three fifty, and buy it. Yeah. Okay. And if you ever want to break your brain for a couple hours, read that segment in... in Capital and real, and then start trying to think about the amount of labor that goes into anything you do on a day-to-day basis, and it's going to shut you down in this weird existential hole where you just kind of curl up in a ball and cry for an hour because it's <laughs> it literally impot like it breaking it. And this is why it's important. This is why he starts here. I at least again first four chapters because again it's like how well. It's stuff that you've taken. It's so ingrained in in how you interact with this system that you take it for granted. That breaking it down to okay, well, how did what is the one universal thing behind all of it? And and yeah, it's labor. It's someone had to do something for some amount of time to get you that thing. Yeah, you'll notice in a lot uh, if you are reading along with this, uh, a lot of the little footnotes. Yes, uh, he, which are great. Which are great. And if you're reading the ebook and you're just skipping through and you're like, oh, I don't need to click that. Click them. You can click right back. They're fantastic. All of those, all of those footnotes are are there for a reason. Yeah, uh, you'll notice a big time he uh, he references Ricardo in the footnotes, and the thing he keeps talking about is he goes, "Well, Ricardo sees this thing, but he doesn't pay attention to what's behind the curtain," mm-hmm. which is a little. I mean, that's kind of cold to say as a philosopher. Yeah, no, no. He, he, this, that is the equivalent. That is the the, the philosopher equivalent of, of oh shit. Like just it's it, he. That's he a swift kick shading, in the nuts with a mic drop. He is shading. And again, because Ricardo. I mean, again, Ricardo acknowledged. Adam Smith acknowledged the the, the labor. You know the the labor value. You know the the that labor existed in the system, and that it was a a value. That there was a value to that labor, and that's how you judge other stuff. Uh, Marsh's general theory so far through the first couple chapters I've gotten through seems to be, ha they did, but they're idiots about it. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> that'll continue. Uh, oh, good, good. <laughs> I would hate if he turned off his Biggie vs. Tupac mentality. <laughs> It'd be upsetting to me. Oh, it gets worse with the show it works. Uh, <laughs> but uh, less time, got to make that mixtape fire. That's right. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, this is where he talks about, you know, weed... Uh, one quarter wheat is X blacking Y. Oh my God! Yeah, this is where I go. Yep, that's where I was like, cool. 
I can read accounting firms too. Good. Bye. Bye, Marks. Bye, yeah. Carl. Yeah, so those those all equate to each other. And so when he went back to gold, uh, he said, well, this this is something. It has a real value. Like, gold was super valuable yeah. because on its own, it's really a, way too malleable to be that valuable. But you can melt it down and make it 14 carat or 18 carat, and all of a sudden, it's the strongest metal that you have. Mm-hmm. And because it's really malleable, it's easy to get it into the small chunks to melt down the right amount. Yep. It was a super valuable metal. Yep. Um, so he says metal has, or gold has a real-world value. It's universally used as this medium of exchange to say, hey, this is labor, and so let's exchange it with each other. And that's kind of how gold became money. Yes. Um, was it's, it's, our main exchange va- it's our main exchange rate. Uh, we know this much gold means other things, but it's really just the exchange value. Now, we also need to talk about labor. Because labor is going to be measured in time. And Marx acknowledges this. The thing you'll notice when you're reading through it, and we're going to miss some of this in the flyby, is Marx acknowledges every single, aha, you're going to think of, and writes about it. Yeah. Which is probably 90% of why these chapters are actually boring. And that's why, again, (laughs) if you think, if if you're listening to this right now, and this is the first introduction you've ever had to it, and you think, ah, those fools, they've been... Yes, we probably didn't talk about that thing, Marx absolutely did. He spent hundreds of pages. There's a reason this is thousands of pages long. It's because he thought of all of it. Yeah. Um, to, to put it in perspective, everything that's in Das Kapital, you can pretty well get from price, profit, and value and layer of theory of value. But it doesn't just denounce all the ahas or go into details to make you better to understand it and communicate it like it is in Das Kapital. So every aha is handled here. And one of the big ones is, well, if it's measured in time and I just work slower, does that make my jacket more valuable? <laughs> and that, honestly, that was the first time that I was like, oh, I see what you're doing there, Carl. All right, all right. I, I, I tried not to work. So wait a minute. If I just suck at this... Does that make my coat the best coat? That's right. And uh, he goes, no, that's obviously stupid because they would just replace you with someone else. Yep. And they would. And in Marx's time, replaced you meant you're going out back yeah. to the woodshed. We're going to break your knees. <laughs> or or if you're a purchaser, just buy from someone else, thank God. Or that, but, yeah. that's, that's the other option. <laughs> I like it was my... pretty. It was pretty brutal times. I like Nathan's description. Oh. Uh, so you can't just be a lazy ass. Yep. Uh, so it's what's socially necessary. Which he equated to the average labor value, but it, the average labor value, or the way he put it better in some other works, is the um, most efficient labor value that you can find as a replacement. In baseball... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop it. Did Karl Marx invent wins above replacement? Did Karl <laughs> Marx invent fucking war? Are you kidding me? He did not, because in baseball... Oh! In baseball, you have all the sucky guys trying to be good, oh. and so your replacement level player is crappier, and he comes up to be a baseline. Damn it. In labor, you have just all of the people who want to work, not the crappy guys training to be the good guys. So anyone who comes in to replace you is probably going to be average, not baseline suck. So there's sort of a wins above replacement level, and oh. wins above replacement level actually met average. Oh, we are so goddamn close, though, to this Mark's <laughs> baseball podcast that I so want to start. God, we are om- we almost cracked it. Yeah. We no, almost cracked it's it. It's not going that direction. Damn it. But uh, the way he states that, so that it's not confused with average, or so that mm-hmm. he knows how to distinctify it, is labor that's socially necessary. And so, that's over, and if, again, trying to, I don't I don't know if I highlight this particular part, because I kind of just accepted it and moved on, um, is it was over for a particular society, for a particular 
particular yeah. area. Yeah. So this is not necessarily even saying, you know, okay, well, let's use the United States and Russia because why not? In 1817, is the United is the same labor to make something in the U.S. the same labor you would take to make it in Russia? It, no, probably not. It probably took more labor in Russia to make that. Mm -hmm. But that's again, it's to that particular locale, and because this is again, at the at. When Marx was writing this, as far as I understand it, this epoch historically, we, steamships were coming about, the railroads were coming about, but we weren't yet at this unitary global economy that we're at now. He wasn't thinking in those terms. He was still thinking a little more regionally. Yeah, and um, I mean, there's still some regional stuff now. We'll also uh, get into, what do I call it, uh, static, uh, static value versus... Uh, God, I can't think of the terms now. Good, and that's why I'm not the expert here, because <laughs> I don't know those terms. And We're, I don't not to those We're not nope, to those cool. chapters yet. Nope, cool. All right, okay. cool. But there's, there's, it's like permanent value versus uh, uh, malleable value. There's a better word for it. I we'll get remember. there. We'll get there. Come back. Uh, Cliffhanger. But you know what you're talking about will actually be addressed. Okay, good. Too. Good. I feel better. <laughs> uh, let's see. I should so, stop trying to outsmart the man with the best beard I've ever seen. <laughs> Oh, yeah, hey, you should see Angles. Of oh. course, then you're outsmarting the same book, so that's yeah, not going to yeah, help you. Can't get them, so, again, just in, in, in that same, we're, we're still in Chapter 1, so things yeah. things that I have highlighted specifically out of Chapter 1, and again, we've we've highlighted some of these, but I just, as, as someone that read it for the first time, things that jumped out at me. The commodity is, first of all, an external object, a thing which, through its quality, satisfy human needs of whatever kind. So, again, if you want to understand, if we haven't thoroughly described you what a commodity is and you're confused, it's a thing that satisfies a need it, it has End to have a story. use value or it's worthless. It has to have a use or it's worthless. It's a thing you need to keep going. Um, so this is, again, bringing up all sorts of questions in my mind about, well, what the fuck does it... But again, I'm not going to start applying 21st century bullshit to Marx just yet. Um, usefulness of a thing makes it a use value. But this usefulness does not dangle in midair and it's conditioned by the physical properties of the commodity. So again, use value, we're back to that. So, all right, I'm, I'm on pace at least. Uh, it has no existence apart from the latter. It is therefore the physical body of the commodity itself. For instance, iron, corn, a diamond, which is the use value or useful thing. This property of a commodity is independent of the amount of labor required to appropriate its useful qualities. So again, things being useful whether or not labor is involved in them is what he says. So there are things that are just inherently useful, it seems to be what he was saying there. And that's almost what tripped me up for a second. Um... <laughs> Both are therefore equal to a third thing. Hey, here's money. Yeah, we're past that. In uh, the same way, exchange value coins must refuse to come an element. Yep, we're back to money again. Yeah, we're back to money again. Hey, Nathan was highlighting things as he figured out money was happening. Look at that. Yeah, money's Did kind it, of important. Did in real time. Um, okay, so yeah, so I think we, I mean, I think we've gotten through the big, big chunks in, in chapter one, at least as far as I'm mm -hmm. concerned of it. Um, um, chapter two, exchange. dual character of labor embodied in commodities. Dear God. Why? Why did he do this? Why did he hate me? <laughs> I don't know what I did to him. Is your chapter two split the same as I? I've got chapter two as exchange. Oh God! Oh, maybe. I have no idea. I don't know. I, I have to go online for the chapter two because my book just skips it because they decide it's not important. Oh well, no. And honest <laughs> to God, that's the other thing. Is from what everything I understand, is is super not that important. Chapter two, um, just to skip over, and the reason that that David's book does skip over it is because chapter two is Marx. Again, this is to catch the aha people. This is literally because apparently, as I understand it, in the 1800s in philosophy, if you wanted to burn somebody, you went, oh, but on page three, chapter two, you <laughs> made a, a slight error in your, you know, logical, ta -ta 
bullshit, just nonsense, nitpicky stuff. So he is literally using 85 different examples to show exactly what he showed, which is things are exchangeable for each other. If you use the 10 yards of linen, it's exchangeable for the coat. If you use the 10 yards of iron, it's exchangeable for the 10 yards of linen. And that means they're exchangeable. And just tautology after tautology after tautology. It is the most um, uh, <laughs> pointless thing I've ever read in my life. Assuming you're already on board. I get why it's there. It is there to bulletproof his argument. And it's there to fight people that disagree with his argument. Or at least be able to show his work. But for somebody that just wants to get to the good stuff, I am like the French. What the fuck are we doing? Okay, um, so we're going to go trust us, Marx is right. Trust us, Marx is right. If he, if you don't think he's right, read chapter two, goddammit, because I'm not going to. I've done it once. It hurt. I don't want to do it again. Chapter three. Chapter three. Money. Money.